In 2011, the American Heart Association released what it called its 2020 Impact Goal. Its goal was to reduce cardiovascular deaths and disabilities by 20% through seven key health metrics. Now, how we get there and what experts like my guest today are doing to lead the way there, that's going to be the focus of our conversation. You're listening to ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and I'm joined by Dr. Patricia Sulak. She is the endowed professor of Texas A&M University College of Medicine, founder of Living Well Aware, and author of the book, Should I Fire My Doctor?, which Patsy tells me is not actually about firing your doctor. It's about several other things, but we've covered that in other interviews. Patsy, welcome to the program. Oh, it's great to be here, Matt. Thank you very much. Great to have you. So, seven key health metrics. We can rattle off through them, but before we do that, what is your general take on this initiative and how it's going so far from a clinician standpoint? Well, from a clinician standpoint, the, well, the initiative is great. How can, how can we be healthier and to have some guidelines and to try to have some goals? Uh, the bad news is, is we're not making the impact that we want by 2020 in a lot of these goals. Because if we can meet these goals, we are going to plummet death and disability. There's, there's no doubt about it. Because these are proven health metrics. So the question is, how can all of us try to get the message out there to patients and to ourselves? We as healthcare providers could be a lot healthier and happier. So walk the walk. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that does seem to be one of the grave errors, if you will, in our practices that many of us can't really follow what we preach. And it is difficult. I think many of us will identify with patients that, especially as we get into these specific metrics, some of them are pretty ambitious and they're hard to hit. They are. And you know, I was, like I say in my, my talks, which I'm a gynecologist, but now my most requested talk around the country now is living well aware, what is healthy? And when I and my husband decided to start pursuing wellness about 10 years ago, there were a lot of things we had to add to our life and a lot of things we had to give up. And we started following what we call our R11 health metrics, which include some aspects of the, of the seven. And, and we really had to make some difficult changes in our life, but now it's a part of our life. And, and I can tell you, we are healthier and happier now in our 60s than we were in our 30s. Huh. So this stuff works. If we start, if we start applying this and, and we're going to be able to see, people are going to be able to see the results, our patients are, and we as healthcare professionals are. So yeah, I titled my book, Should I Fire My Doctor? But it's not about firing your doctor, it's about hiring yourself. But we as healthcare professionals can do so much just by being examples of health. Well, you totally motivate me now. Let's, um, you know, before I jump right on that bandwagon and find out what the extra five are in your case, <laughs> beyond the seven, let's move in on these seven health metrics that the sure. AHA put out there. Number one, right off the bat, blood pressure. Now, they're looking at an ideal that is in the range of less than 120 systolic, less than 80 diastolic. I've always heard 120 over 80, you're doing well. Is that ancient and antiquated thinking? Well, I think the data is pretty clear. A blood pressure of 120 over 80 or less, uh, you decrease your risk of cardiovascular disease. But also think that as we age, I mean, our blood pressures are going to go up, and we can spend so much time trying to get them perfect that we're we're miserable. So yes, we want to be as close to 120 over 80 or less as we can, but as we age, it may be difficult to do that. I just had a friend of mine who's who's in his mid-70s, and he's like a 
stickler for health. He plays tennis. He eats healthy and everything. And he was doing, he was trying to keep his blood pressure below 120 over 80, making himself miserable with the side effects from the medications. So, and I think we just saw that in a recent article that was published where they showed that, yes, aggressive management of blood pressure does have better outcomes as far as cardiovascular outcomes. But they also put the price on there. For some patients, there's going to be some side effects. So I think there's going to be a balance there for a lot of people. But it's like my essential element, number one of my 11, is normal numbers now. And one of those numbers is blood pressure. And I want my blood pressure to be 120 over 80 or less. If I can't do it with my lifestyle, I want my doctor to fix it. Or I want to get a new doctor, <laughs> and, and, you know, unless, you know, the medications are making us, us miserable. Because for some people with bad cardiovascular family histories and stuff, it may be difficult. But there's no, the data is very clear on where we ought to be. Right. So where blood pressure is concerned, aggressive, aggressive, it seems like, is yeah. the way to go. Unless you're making yourself miserable, right. like my friend was. <laughs> I go, you know, one, 135 over 85 for you, and, you know, and, and then you say you don't have any side effects and you're feeling great, and he's in his mid-70s, that may be the best for him, and he's going to feel better. We, we can't make ourselves miserable trying to right. be healthy. Right. Quality of life yes. seems to have a, a bit of a factor. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it sure does. <laughs> well... You raise an interesting point, though, because you talked about sort of aggressive maintenance of good blood pressure, which makes a lot of sense. Another one of these key metrics is blood glucose. Now, there have been some studies, um, I think back and forth, but some studies that have indicated that really aggressive maintenance of blood glucose can actually worsen some outcomes for people if it's very, very, very aggressive, keeping it very low. Not to the point of hypoglycemic, but people who are maintained incredibly vigilantly seem to have some health issues as well. What what do you know about that? Exactly what you said. Uh, If we're very aggressive with some patients, the outcomes can be negative, and hypoglycemia can can be a problem. But I think the key thing is preventing diabetes. We we have so many people out there with lifestyle-induced diabetes because of obesity. And, and, And if we can just get those people to change their habits lose weight, exercise and all, they're going to keep their glucose in a normal range with their lifestyle or maybe with minor modifications with medication and all. The problem we have now is, well, you know, it was just released. I mean, 38% of women, 38.5% of women in the United States meet the criteria for obesity, a BMI, you know, greater than 30. And we know long term, a lot of those women are going to develop self-induced diabetes. So I think the whole thing with the seven health metrics is yes, have a normal fasting blood sugar. And a lot of people, it would have been normal with their lifestyle. When you get to the aggressive management, I think it's once again, it's, it's like blood pressure. If you can keep your fasting blood sugar below 100 and keep a lot of your other sugars below 140 and all, I mean, that's fantastic. And an article actually published, I think it was in JAMA, I could be wrong, showed that even minor elevations of glucose, you know, not diabetes, but just impaired glucose tolerance, increased your risk for dementia. So it behooves all of us to, you know, to go, hey, I want to try to have my glucose in a normal range. And for a lot of people, it's a matter of lifestyle. I could easily devote an entire interview with you just talking about that trend towards di- uh, diabetes and obesity and the metabolic syndrome, because you'd have to be living in a cave under a rock in Mars not to see that trend happening. But we have a, another mission today, which is our seven health metrics. <laughs> We're exactly. going to rattle right through, so let's just I, keep on championing keep going through. There. So physical activity, perfect setup from what you just talked about about that trend. It seemed like the, the goals were... <laughs> 
Ambitious is one term. I, don't, I know I don't meet these goals, and I like to exercise as much as I can. But they were looking at at least 150-plus minutes per week of moderate or 75-plus minutes of vigorous exercise or some sort of combination in which you're doing 60-plus minutes a day. I know I don't meet that at all as somebody who would like to be considered minimally athletic. <laughs> where, where do you stand with recommendations like that? Do people hit that, or is that even possible? Where do I stand? Matt, after this, you're going to do this. <laughs> you are going to meet these criteria. <laughs> Look at me here. Here we go. Now, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm my husband, who's also a physician. He's a surgeon. We did not meet the seven health metrics when we started pursuing wellness. We meet them all now. We went, the, the data's clear on this. We want to reduce our risk of death and disability. We need to meet these seven, and one of them was physical activity. Mm. Think about it. 30 minutes a day? You don't have time for that? You don't have time to decrease your, your risk of death, disability, dementia, depression? <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm getting the eye here. Are you with me on I, this? I, I 30, agree with you. 30 minutes a day. And now it's a part of our schedule. It's a ritual with us now. We get up in the morning, hydrate, and exercise, head to the gym. It's, it's not a question because it's like it's the best thing we can do to feel better the rest of the day, physically, emotionally. It's, I, always, I always say it's my SSRI. <laughs> I, I don't have to take Prozac or right. Zoloft or anything. I get up in the morning and exercise. So the data on exercise is incredible. Even if you're a little bit overweight, that's okay as long as you're moving. And in my 11 essential elements, that, that's number three, and it's make movement mandatory, whatever it takes. Our lifestyles today are so sedentary. I mean, what do I do most of the day? What I'm doing right now, sitting. And the only muscles I'm moving are... <laughs> Or the muscles around my mouth. I talk all day long, talking to patients, talking on the phone, giving talks. I'm sitting. And so that's what's happened today. If we don't put movement in our schedule, we found out what, what, what's happening. In fact, smoking is actually the number one cause of death still uh, around the world today. It's predicted, an article published in Lancet, it's going to be replaced by sedentary lifestyle. And so it, it behooves us all to go, no, I, you know, I don't need to do this, or maybe I should do this, or I don't have time to do this. No. One of the best things that you can do is move. It's what's kept my dad alive. He's 93 years old. He goes to the gym five days a week. And he's, he's 90, I always say he's 93 going on 16. Uh, and that's the only reason my mother made it close to ADH. She had horrible blood pressure and a lot of other problems. Genetically should have died a decade or two before. The reason she lived so long, the woman would not stop moving. Make movement mandatory. Make movement mandatory. And I hate to correct you. I'm going to correct you in one respect, and that is that sitting is not entirely a passive activity, especially if you're in chairs like these that are an abdominal exercise in and of themselves. But moving from there, what about those, you know, and I do want to keep rattling through the, the seven health metrics, but what about those, I'm sure you encounter this a lot, people who say, I do my exercise very, very vigorously, and it, it requires rest. You'll hear a lot about people, from, uh, gym rats, for instance, will often say, you know, they, they go all out, and they do a lot for one day, and then they need about 24 hours or even more of rest to recuperate and then get back into it. Is that a complete farce? I, I bet you those people aren't resting like we say they are. If they're that vigorous, chances are that day that they're off, those people are active. So I doubt that they're doing nothing. You know, and I, you don't have to go to the gym to do this. Those guys are really intense. I, I know what kind of vigorous activity they're talking about. And no one knows what the best form of activity is. This intense activity even good for us in the long run? We, you know, 
and how much is too much and all. So uh, we really don't know that. And there was actually a good article published on that in JAMA j just within the last month on how much exercise is too much, is there too much. But I think these people that are vigorous, exercise vigorously, they're probably pretty active even on the days off. Right, right. And again, I have to reiterate, I do feel quite active just sitting here because I feel like I'm going to fall at any given moment. So it's a, <laughs> quite a, an abdominal core strengthening exercise. I don't know if you're encountering that as well. So let's keep moving. So cholesterol, less than 170 mg per deciliter. That, I guess that sort of makes sense. Yeah, I think everybody keeps talking about cholesterol, and, and I think cholesterol is important. And I really want to know... I want to know what your HDL is. I want to know what your LDL is. I've got patients who have cholesterols that, that are over 200, but their HDL cholesterol is 80 and 90. I mean, it's amazing. They genetically have great HDL cholesterols. And you talk to their, their family history, you know, yeah, their mother's 102, and she's not in a nursing home. So I, I think looking at our HDL, looking at our LDL, and, and trying to, you know, optimally trying to get the LDL below 100. I mean, there's really good data on that, and definitely below 120 or so. So it's, it's the LDL cholesterol also. So I like HDL and LDL. And now, of course, you know, the uh, non-HDL cholesterol calculating it. Right. So I think our total cholesterol gives us a good idea, but I've got patients who have a total cholesterol of 200 or less than 200, but their HDL is 25. Hmm. Not good. <laughs> so let, let's know what our, our, that's one thing I really don't like a whole lot about the criteria. It just looks at total cholesterol. We all need normal numbers now. I want to know what your HDL is. I want to know what your LDL is. I want to know what your triglycerides are. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, maybe I want to know your total, but I want to know what your HDL and your LDL are and, and make sure you don't have really elevated triglycerides. And for those who are dealing with a familial hypercholesterolemia for which pharmacological interventions only take them so far, I mean, you hope that they, they, they do the job, but let's say that they, in many cases, they, they don't quite take them to goals like this. Is there a form of resignation that comes with that, or is there a sense of you know, I can still optimize all my other health factors. Oh, you sure can. And, and drug therapy is so important in these people. The example I give when I'm uh, talking in wellness conferences uh, is the example of Jim Fix, the marathon runner. He wrote the complete book of running a few decades ago. Got, got people moving in the United States, doing 5Ks, 10Ks, marathons. And what happened to him? I mean, he was an inspiration to so many people. At the age of 35, he quit smoking, lost 50 pounds, started, started running. Uh, but then at the age of 52, he killed over. They found him dead when he went for a run. Why? He had a horrible family history, and he declined a stress test and declined as his doctor's advice. And so if you're one of those people that has the familial history, you know your family members are dying. You know, even in their 60s today, that is young. I mean, that is young. You need to get your cholesterol checked and aggressive medical management and, and lifestyle because a lot of these people, you know, they may be able to exercise and eat healthy, they're still going to need some pharmacologic therapy. And I'm amazed at how horrible some people's numbers can be. And with lifestyle and medical therapy, how wonderful they are. It's really amazing. Hmm. There's a lot of people walking around today that would not be here <laughs> without modern pharmacologic therapy. It's pretty amazing. Fascinating. Well, we are just about out of time. So we're going to do one last quick push. Okay. Okay. If I don't mention the other health metrics, I'm going to get us in trouble. So going to lump these together, healthy diet and healthy weight. Having an ideal four to five components within the healthy diet, I think it makes intuitive sense. On diet, I can just say two words, Mediterranean diet. That's Sold. it. 
I mean, there's more data on the Mediterranean diet in decreasing cardiovascular disease, I mean, heart attack, stroke, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinsonism, cancer. There's more data. You can talk any diet you want, the data, Mediterranean diet. Done. And as far as the obesity, we're not anywhere near the 2020 goal of an obesity rate of 30.5%. Our, our obesity rate is 36.5%, and we've got a lot to do to try to get it below that 305 But we can do this, and we're starting to see some trends. You know, we can do this. All right. And the last one, smoking status, which goes without saying. Yeah, an article just came out. We were at an all-time smoking low of like 16.5%. It was a couple of years ago, it was 18 point something percent. So we can continue to get it down and we need to get it down further. I just, I, that, that and drinking too much alcohol are, are two things that are just killing, you know, thousands and thousands of people every year. And if we can get those to a minimum or eliminate them from our, our world, it's going to be great. One, one glass of wine a day is great for you. You start getting in more than that, and you start increasing your risk of many things. And tobacco, there's just nothing good about it. It's been a whirlwind tour of the seven health metrics from the AHA. We have barely scratched the surface. Dr. Silak and I could be here all day, but she has pressing concerns, and I have nowhere else to be except to work this uh, extremely difficult chair. So, Dr. Sulak, thanks again for your time. Really appreciate you being here with us today. uh, Matt, thank you, and I appreciate it. Thank you very much. (laughs) For more access to this and other interviews on ReachMD, head on over to ReachMD.com. We'll be there. Thanks again.